for this evening. This is God's word given to us as people for our good. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. Again, God's holy word. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. Perhaps you have heard of the phrase, cheap grace. Cheap grace. One of the finest Christian thinkers of the 20th century wrote about cheap grace as uh, what he saw as a disease running rampant through the church. It was a man called, uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian. He spoke against cheap grace because what he saw was a culture that had begun to act like the grace of God was something you could buy in bulk. It came cheaply. Dispensations of grace were a dime a dozen. The account of grace was always full, thus you could live however you want and take whatever you want from the account of grace. You could tap into it without being contrite in heart, without falling on your knees or your face in repentance. He said that cheap grace is a misunderstanding of grace because grace is not cheap. Yes, God gives it to us freely, but freely to us at a great cost to him. It cost God the highest price, his dear son who himself paid the price of his life for his own at the cross. And it is that cost, that cost of grace that we see in tonight's passage. When we are shown the price that our Savior paid for sin, we realize that the cost of grace leaves us with no choice but to come and to give ourselves to Jesus at the foot of the cross, even though we can never pay the price that he did for redemption. We begin by looking at this passage at the end of Luke chapter 9. 
we see that a certain time in Jesus' life is approaching. Our version reads, the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. The word for taken up to heaven is a very rare word in the New Testament that only appears here in Luke. It's basically a word that means ascension or assumption. So we ask, is Luke really wanting us to think about Jesus going directly up to heaven here? In in the course of the narrative, it's a little bit out of left field. All of a sudden, it's time for Jesus to be taken up to heaven. But it's certainly true, isn't it? We kind of, we we know the end of the story, and and Luke intended to give us a glimpse of the end of the story here, that Jesus is going to be taken up to heaven. But we should remember that it's not so simple, is it? There are a lot of other things that need to happen before Jesus can be taken up. It's not as if he is going to go into Jerusalem and find a, a teleportation place, a pod, and just go up into heaven. There are other things that must happen First, as we have seen here in chapter 9, and as Jesus has begun to teach his disciples, he must suffer. He must be given over into the hands of men. Thus, Luke is saying that his ascension, or his going up, yes, it is approaching. But he means this word to entail not just his going up into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, but also his carrying his cross up to the Mount of Golgotha, his being lifted up as he is nailed to that cross and the agony of dying for sinners as he is despised and rejected. Remember that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration discussing with Moses and Elijah his own exodus. Remember that word exodus that was in that passage. And Luke is using another word here, Ascension to encapsulate all that Jesus is going to do. It's another word that carries a lot of weight. This word ascension is like another word uh, like that word exodus. The literal, literal phrase here at the beginning of this passage is when the fulfillment of the days of his ascension drew near. You see that's a little bit different than what we see in our translation. The fulfillment of the days of his ascension drew near. And that word for fulfillment shows us that it's part of the divine plan what is going on here. According to what the Father has willed, the time has now come for Jesus to make his way to Jerusalem, for him to go, to carry his cross, and to face the suffering that has been waiting for him. And it's a shift in the Gospel of Luke. This is really kind of the hinge point of the Gospel. Up until this time, Jesus has been in Galilee, and now his mission is has shifted. It is a new point. He will no longer be growing in fame and notoriety up in Galilee. Chapter 9, there's been a little bit of a a pause from that, hasn't there? No longer do we see this sort of fast pace of the miracles and crowds growing and growing. The disciples have gotten a little bit of extra time in the narrative. There was the transfiguration scene where uh, Peter and James and John got a glimpse of who Jesus is. So we sense that in the story, all of these shifts are sort of coming about. The rest of the gospel is going to be a little bit different. But even after all that has happened in chapter 9, really, this is probably the key point. The key point in Luke's gospel. For we read that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke here uses a, a Greek form of a Hebrew phrase. 
when he says he resolutely set out, means literally he set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus fixed his concentration on exactly what it was that he was about to do, what he was called to do, what he had to do, and how he would fulfill the mission that had been given to him. We talk about this when we we see the steely-eyed focus of a competitor in sports. The greatest in their respective sports all seem to have a certain demeanor that they will wear on their face in the most important moments. Uh, A demeanor that speaks of the determination to complete the task at hand, no matter the obstacles. A steely-eyed focus. That's what Jesus has. He resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. It's at the center of Jesus' concentration. He must go there to fulfill what he was sent to do. So this is the beginning of Jesus' exodus pilgrimage. No longer will he be going through the north country to grow as a celebrity in the wilderness. Somewhat of a strange figure, but constantly growing in popularity. Rather, he will now go to Jerusalem, the big city, to finish what he came to do. And when we consider what Jesus does here, we should stop and think about this point in the story and see how difficult it truly is. All of us have times, don't we, when we push off and procrastinate the harder things that we have to do in our lives. Juniors in high school delay working on that big research paper. I think I waited until probably the week of my junior year and I had all of this work I needed to catch up on. We push off our taxes to avoid the agony. We don't want to know exactly how much we may have to pay. That root canal or that knee replacement, that is more than we can stand to think about. We push off the hard things in our lives because we don't want to face the pain or the suffering or the difficulty that it's going to bring. In the same way it could have been tempting for Jesus to push this off until his 40s, right? I'll just wait. I can't stand to face the pain that awaits me. I'll think about that in five years. But no. When the time came, exactly when the time came, he set his face to Jerusalem and he started making his way to fulfill all that his father had called him to do. But Luke has given away the end of the story, hasn't he? He has told us exactly how it's going to end, that Jesus is going to be lifted up, that eventually he will make his way all the way up into heaven. He does this to show that Jesus is not just some weird masochist who is reveling in the pain he is about to go through. Jesus was not looking forward to going through the cross. He does not enjoy pain, he hates it. He hates pain and suffering, but what he does here is very simply trusts his Father in heaven to work all things together for his good. We think of the book of Hebrews where it says, for the joy that was set before him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus here is resolved to die. And he will not be convinced to waver in his mission. He knows that true, eternal, and unfading glory and bliss with his Father awaits him. And all who follow him in his train to arrive at his Father's kingdom. For in talking about an assumption or an ascension, we are reminded of the one other character in scripture 
who had the same kind of experience. Elijah. Elijah was also taken up into heaven. And in that we see this connection between Jesus and Elijah, which we already have been hinted at or clued in on in chapter 9 as Moses and Elijah were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Just like Elijah, so Jesus will not end his time on this earth with death. No, he is one who will be taken up into heaven. Even though he is destined to die, death will not ultimately have the last word with Jesus. So the next large chunk of Luke will be traveling to Jerusalem, a travel narrative. But it will not be a quick trip. It will not be an easy trip. It will focus more on Jesus' words than his actions. And that way it will be different than the nine chapters we have already seen. The nine chapters we have seen of Jesus walking through Galilee and doing so many miracles and and giving so many signs of who he is. Jesus will focus on his teaching because, as we know, his disciples have a lot to learn. They still have a lot to learn. They're not fully grasping exactly what it is that Jesus must do or the nature of the redemption he has, came, he has come uh, to give to his people. And so, since Jesus has to leave Galilee and go to Jerusalem, his quickest route will be to go uh, straight through Samaria. This is hard for us to understand, but there's a huge history that plays into what goes on here in this passage. At this point in history, Samaritans were hated by Jews. The Jews thought of them as half-breeds. And the Samaritans responded, not in a kind way either. They built their own religious system that had, uh, they, they rejected the temple, and their worship took place on Mount Gerizim. All kinds of hatred and bitterness going back and forth between the Jews and the Samaritans. So going from Galilee to Jerusalem could possibly present problems if Jesus wants to go through Samaria. Especially for one who is considered to be a great prophet who will have his day of glory in Jerusalem. You can see why Samaritans would not be too excited about that. This would be kind of a a parallel, would be people who love to vacation in Alaska, but they have to go through Canada to get there, right? You want to go and see uh, the best part of the American wilderness country, but you have to go through uh, Canada to get there. Apologies to any Canadians who may be here. This explains to us what happens next. Uh, The Canadians, I mean the Samaritans, do not receive Jesus. By the way, I'm kidding about Canada. You know, when when things aren't going so well in your own country, you tend to try to deflect attention away. You know, we we have all of this uh, infighting as Americans, so I'm doing the old, you know, ignore the problems in America, trying to deflect attention away. I love Canada, and uh, I love all that Canada is. Hope to go there someday. So. So the Samaritans do not receive Jesus. Uh, Some disciples go ahead to find the right place and to make preparations for wherever he has to go. But the word of who Jesus is, this great prophet who is destined to go to Jerusalem, uh, and this hero of the Jews, supposed hero of the Jews, tells the Samaritans all that they need to know. They don't want anything to do with this Jesus. They don't want anything to do with this golden boy headed to Jerusalem for something big, to have his day of glory. Keep in mind that all of Jesus' followers are probably abuzz right now with excitement, seeing that Jesus is now decided that they're going to go to Jerusalem, and they're thinking, 
our big day is coming. The glory that we have waited for is finally here. And so just like a restaurant owner in Cleveland who would probably not roll out the red carpet to welcome the Chicago Cubs for a celebration dinner, so everyone in this Samaritan village agrees that Jesus should just keep on walking. They want nothing to do with him. So this angers James and John quite a bit. They get thinking and they do not need much time deciding on what it is that they would like to do. They ask Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven. That's a bit odd, isn't it? It's kind of out of the blue. All of a sudden, James and John filled with all of this anger, all of this aggression. But really, James and John are once again reminding, of, uh, reminding us of Elijah. This, again, uh, shows us, reminds us of one of the accounts regarding Elijah in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah told the king of Samaria, notice the same place, dealing with the same place, Samaria. Elijah told the king of Samaria that he would surely die, a prophecy, saying that uh, your time has come. You are not going to live any longer. The king of Samaria is not happy with this news, and so he decides to flex a little bit of muscle to get Elijah's attention. He sends Elijah, a captain of his army, with 50 soldiers behind this captain following him. But rather than running in fear or bowing down to this band of 50 men, Elijah calls down fire from heaven that consumes all of them. And the king tries it again. And Elijah does the same thing again. 100 men, just like that. This was perhaps one of those passages that Jews would read in that time with sinful pleasure chuckling to themselves about how God really showed the Samaritans in that time what was what, thinking about the glories in their mind of all that God had done to the Samaritans. And since James and John have just seen Elijah with Jesus, perhaps they're thinking that they're connecting the right dots here. Jesus is going to begin uh, showing the kind of power and coercion that he really uh, can effect on the earth. They figure that this is the right idea. This is what Jesus wants us to suggest. Beyond that, Jesus has given his disciples power and authority. Remember, the beginning of chapter 9, he sent them out with power and authority to proclaim and to heal and to show the power of the kingdom of God. James and John see their opportunity. Just like Elijah, it's time for the Samaritans to be shown who is boss. But just their asking, just their suggesting, gets an especially strong response from Jesus. We read that he rebuked them. We have seen this word several times in Luke, but we have seen it in the way that Jesus has dealt with the powers of evil. He rebukes sicknesses and demons and all things that are opposed to his rule of new creation in the world. I described it a few weeks ago as blasting. Jesus blasts sickness and demons and all that stands opposed to him. So it ought to catch our eye. Luke uses the exact same word in the exact same form of that verb to describe what Jesus does to James and John. This is not just a gentle hey think about your words next time. This is a very strong rebuke. It's forceful. And what is it about what James and John does that Jesus finds so disagreeable? 
It's because not only is it a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus has come to do, but it creates a hurdle to the cross. It's a hurdle to the cross, and thus it becomes, in some ways, a stumbling block to Jesus. Jesus has not come to call fire down on his enemies. He has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to suffer and die for sin. The manifestation of God's work in the days of Elijah was one that pointed forwards to ultimate redemption from judgment. It was a symbol. Thus, Elijah could work in more of these these material ways. It was uh, an actual typological manifestation of the kingdom of God. So Elijah has these times where judgment actually happens. But that is not what is happening now. In order for Jesus to be delivered into the hands of men, there must be men who are ready and willing to take him and to kill him. If James and John begin calling down lightning on everyone who is opposed to Jesus, upon everyone who looks at him the wrong way, the cross will never come to pass. Jesus had the power to call down heavenly armies in his defense, but he did not do it because he had to suffer and die at the hands of sinful men. This reminds us of when Jesus rebuked Peter. Just after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Lord and the Christ, Jesus then begins to say once again that he's going to suffer and that he is going to die in the Gospel of Matthew. And you remember Peter says, Lord, may it never be. May you never suffer. And Jesus responds by saying what? He says, get behind me, Satan. This recognition of these dark forces at work, just like when he rebukes James and John. He says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. Jesus did not like hearing that no one could grasp that he was to suffer. He did not like hearing that no one was willing to accept that. He knew that glorification was better than suffering. He knew that going to Jerusalem and and ruling over people without having to go through the cross would have probably been more enjoyable and less painful. But in suggesting these things, James and John stand in the way of the true life, the true redemption, the true liberation that Jesus has come to accomplish. It's no different than for us in the church today. The church is not to call down fire upon her enemies. The church is not to gain followers through coercion and Force. The church is to wait for the vindication and the judgment of God, not to bear the sword, but to wait for God's sword of judgment at the last day. Jesus will tell his disciples to shake the dust off of their feet when a town rejects them, not to call down fire from heaven, but to shake the dust off your feet as a sign, as a sign that the mark has been left on that place. And if they do not repent, if they do not turn, they will have to answer for their rejection of the truth and the good news that they heard. The nature of what Jesus did while he was here on earth means that the church cannot take up arms, cannot bear the sword. He came to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, to serve others, to give a redemption that was needed for Jew and for Gentile. He left his people in the midst of this age to testify of his grace, 
to be salt and to be light, so that people may come to him while he may be found. The church is not to take up arms, not to conquer the world through coercion. Rather, God continues to conquer hearts as the gospel is proclaimed. God continues to overthrow people who are overcome by the good news. And when all those appointed to eternal life have been brought in, then in one fell swoop, God will conquer all of his enemies when Christ comes again. Until that time, the church often will have to endure scorn and shame and a lowly status. This passage, however, reminds us that in doing so, we are merely following the example of Jesus. We're walking through this earth the way that he did. Sure, he could have called down legions of angels, but he did not. He faced his suffering, and he went through it for you and for me. Power over our enemies is something that we all relish. We would all like to be able to just brush away anyone who would stand opposed to us. But God has not given that to the church in this time. What we see in this story also reminds us that whenever trials come our way, we must know that God has not promised us total victory and freedom from the difficult or painful things in this life. God has not promised the church that is always going to be easy for everyone in it. Total victory. Painless living. No, we go through this world knowing that we have been saved because our Savior did not come to call down lightning on the sinful or rebellious. Thus we are called to do the same, to sometimes endure suffering so that God's grace might be magnified and exalted. But in following Jesus, one thing that we as the church find out is that we are often a pale reflection of what Jesus accomplished for us. We hear about the cost of discipleship. Maybe you've heard that phrase, the cost of discipleship, but really that phrase only has any meaning because of the price that Jesus paid to make us his own. This is the thrust of the interaction that Jesus has with all of these would-be disciples in the second half of the passage. It's a way of showing us that even though the call upon us in following Jesus is real and weighty, we will never be able to do exactly what Jesus did. We will never be able to accomplish what he accomplished and to do it in the same way. Jesus alone is the one who sets his face to Jerusalem, who never wavers, who never leaves the path, and who follows it through all the way to the end. And it's fitting that these three interactions that we have in the second half of this passage would be right here in Luke at this point in the narrative. These interactions show us that the time really is drawing near and because of that, things will be different until Jesus is crucified. But rather than discouraging us and saying that we can never really follow Jesus truly, it encourages us to live like him more and more. Let's look then at this first interaction beginning in verse 57. We'll go quickly through these and just give some closing remarks. These three uh, brief conversations are presented to us just as general interactions. We don't have the names of these men, just general interactions that uh, would be typical of the kind that Jesus would have. This first man has a lot of zeal and energy, doesn't he? 
I will follow you wherever you go, he says to Jesus. But Jesus responds by reminding him that although it may look glamorous, although his life may look really sweet, it really isn't. His life is very difficult, Jesus' life that is. He ends the day without a place to go home, without all of those things which we find most comfortable in this life, a roof over your head, the comfort of those closest to us. In other words, in order to follow Jesus, one must count the cost. Excitement, energy, all of those things fade away. They will not be there forever. To follow Jesus means to do it when the glory is there and when the glory is taken away. If anyone is under the impression that what Jesus is about to enter is a life of royalty and a life of leisure, then they had better reconsider. This highlights exactly where we are in Luke. Jesus now is going to be all about going to the cross and dying for sinners. It was not plush palaces. It was cold, dark, lonely wilderness that was the regular home of Jesus in his ministry. The second interaction has Jesus initiating the conversation in verse 59. Follow me, he says. But this man that he calls is in a state of mourning. His father has just died and he wants to go and bury him. Now in the Old Testament, it was lawful for you to take care of your parents when they died. They were supposed to, you're supposed to honor your parents and you were supposed to marry, uh, to bury them the right way. It was commanded by God that you take care of your elderly parents, pay your proper respects when they died. Thus, Jesus tells this man to suspend his obedience to that Old Testament law in order to follow him. From this, we can conclude that Jesus is not giving some kind of normative commandment that would still be true for us today. He is showing us what he is illustrating, two different things uh, that are present at this point in the narrative. Two things, urgency and sacredness. Things have become urgent at this point in Luke 9. Urgent because, as we mentioned previously, the cross is now drawing nearer and nearer. There is no longer any time to reflect or to mourn or to remember. At this point in Luke, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to give up everything else. It's not only urgency, but sacredness. Those who are going to follow Jesus and follow him uh, closely we're going to be called to a special kind of sacred devotion. In the Old Testament, there were two kinds of people who could not go to funerals, Nazarites and the high priest. They could not go because the nature of their being set apart and holy was not appropriate for that kind of setting. So Jesus shows that all those who want to be a part of his close followers must give themselves to this level of sacred devotion, Give up everything else for the proclamation of the kingdom. The third interaction illumines this point even further. The third one that begins in verse 60. The third man says that he will follow Jesus, but first he just wants to go and say goodbye to his family. To see them one last time. To give them a hug and a kiss. And then he will come and follow Jesus. But Jesus says even this is inappropriate. Even this is something that he cannot do. Jesus uses the example of a farmer who puts his hand to the plow 
And once he starts digging that straight line, if he looks behind him, his whole job will be messed up because he will not be able to still go in a straight line. So if Jesus is saying that not only burying your dead family members, but even saying goodbye to your family members is not appropriate, then who can do it? If that is what it takes to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, then no one is able to give that level of sacrifice and devotion. And that is exactly the point. That's the point of this passage in Luke. No one was going to be able to walk this road with Jesus all the way to the end. What does our catechism say? Our Savior needed to be true God, true man, truly righteous, and wholly obedient. No one was going to be able to walk with Jesus all the way to the end. The devotion that Jesus had to show was beyond what anyone could have shown then and beyond what any one of us can show to God now. So Jesus is not saying that Christians should not bury their dead. He's not saying that they should ignore the comforts of family and friends. In fact, when we read the book of Acts, Luke goes out of his way to show that the early church did practice proper burial and mourning and paying their respects. He does show us that they they were committed to the categories of the nuclear family and remaining committed to all of those things. Rather, Luke does it in this passage to magnify for our minds the price that Jesus had to pay for us. What did Jesus have to give up? Everything. He was homeless. The one who had all the glories of heaven gave up everything and did not have a home. The God who was the Lord and the giver of life did not have the time to focus on properly mourning the death of those closest to him. Jesus did not have the comforts of love and living with family. It magnifies for us the price that he paid. When Peter was first called to follow Jesus, remember he leaves it all and he follows him. He was fishing He leaves his boat and he follows Jesus, begins following him everywhere he goes. But even Peter did not make it to the end of the road, did he? Peter could not walk with Jesus all the way to the end. He denied him. He left him. Everyone left him. Jesus was all alone. Only he set his face to Jerusalem and did not waver. But then after Peter denies Jesus, Jesus restores him after he is raised, restores him once again to follow him and to feed the sheep of of God, to go and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news. And the same picture is true for us. We can't pay the price that Jesus paid. We would not have gotten to the end of the road with him. Only he was able to set his face to Jerusalem. Only he was able to give up every earthly comfort and relationship and perfectly obey his father and love us to the end. But now, but now that Jesus holds the power of resurrection life, and now that we look back and see the cross of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus, we see the price he paid, and we can do nothing other than give our lives to the king who died for us. The commands that Jesus gives are not binding on us today. They were a special time. 
given to illumine exactly what it is that Jesus was doing, meant to show that no one could perfectly or fully walk that road with him. We ought to bury our loved ones. We ought to mourn them. We ought to enjoy the love that we share while we are with them on this earth. But we ought to also see our Savior, crucified, risen, ascended, and know that if our eternal life was bought at such a great price, we must serve and glorify him with all that we are and with all that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Impress these truths deep upon our hearts and our minds. May we go forth ready to live for you because of the price that our Savior paid, a price that we could never pay. Empower us then to live following him in in the, the imperfect ways that we so often do, but empowered by your Spirit, walking by faith, trusting that it is the righteousness of Christ and his blood that speaks a better word than our lives ever could. We trust in him. By the power of your spirit, may we follow him. In his name, amen.